You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Colossians, we've been studying now for several months. Colossians, we've made it to chapter 3. I'll read the first four verses of Colossians 3 this morning. Listen to God's holy word. The Apostle Paul writes this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God apply his word. As we hear it, may the words not simply pass by our ears, but may they sink in and change us and shape us. I always know when... Seniors graduate from high school and are headed off to college. That for many of them, a fairly large discovery awaits that the dimensions of which they probably are not anticipating. And that is the discovery of a roommate, someone who the college, in its infinite wisdom, in a housing department, has matched them up with. I say matched in quotes. Sometimes they match, and sometimes they don't. And I have seen interesting experiences from our young people of the church or of my own acquaintance when you come to college and your, your mind is on classes and academics and all those things, but not necessarily on the great dynamic presence of this other person that's going to sleep five feet away from you and share a lot of your time, and influence you, inevitably influence you just by daily presence, maybe for great good, but quite often the other way too. There's a similar, uh, but usually and thankfully much more positive experience that comes from the influence of a person on your life, and that is the experience new parents have when they bring that little infant home from the hospital for the first time. Here again, you can't possibly make them understand until they experience it what a dominating influence that little person is going to have on their married life. They, they think, well, we're a, having a great time as a couple. We've been married several years. So we're ready for a baby. Life is great. And they just have no idea of the tremendous impact on their independence, their privacy, their schedule, everything that that sweet little squalling child is going to have. Of course, it's a good influence, but it's one that changes everything, doesn't it? Your independence, your ability to take a car trip across town. You know you have to pack up like it was for an African safari, all the equipment you have to take. Life is different. It'll never be the same again. 
Well, what I'm alluding to is the enormous influence of other important persons upon our lives. We like to think, I'm independent, I make my own decisions, I determine my way. And yet, roommates, spouses, little children can have tremendous influence on who we are and what we become. Well, Colossians is putting a great emphasis on the fact today that there's another person who ought to influence your life as a Christian believer in a greater way than either a roommate or a spouse or a new baby at home. We've had this strong thesis in Colossians that God, in all His mysterious fullness of being and glory, chooses to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, furthermore, that Jesus Christ chooses to dwell as the fullness of God in the life of those who believe in Him and call Him Lord. And so this amazing transaction of human beings being in Christ, as Paul says it, is something, while it is unseen by the world as far as an, an immediate influence, you know, I might know you and say, well, there's, there goes Joe Smith. I know his wife Jane and I know the influence Jane has on Joe. But the world doesn't see this influence necessarily. You might not be seen in, as someone in Christ, at least immediately, by many co-workers or neighbors or other people, and yet here is the person whose powerful influence ought to be greater than anything else upon your life, more influential than the close presence of any other person. Now, as we begin chapter 3 of Colossians, I would remind you that this letter follows the pattern of so many of the apostles where doctrine occupies the main part of the early portion of the letter. That has been true from chapter 1, at least at verse 15, right on through nearly all of chapter 2. But now Paul is applying now, he, if you want to say doctrine isn't practical, he's going to tell you that it is because he's going to show you how doctrine has to influence your life, your behavior, your thinking through the rest of this epistle. And here in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, we find him fastening on this idea of Christians being raised with Christ, something that he says has already happened. When Christ arose, all those who would belong to him were literally raised up into a new life. And so he's taking that now and and fastening on that as the impetus or the power source of our living a different life. Now, Paul wasn't simply a moralist. You know, a moralist is somebody who says, here's good things you should do. It would be a great idea if you did this. Here's a high ideal. Go live by it. But they don't tell you how you are to live by it or where you're supposed to get the power to do something that's contrary to your nature. Paul's not just a moralist. He's saying you ought to do certain things, and God has made you a new person and put his own power and his own presence through the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ in your life to give you his resurrection power to do these things that he urges you to do. He's not asking the impossible. He empowers but he commands. Christ is in you. That's the the assumption up till now. And so his ruling influence should have a big effect on your whole life. 
the life of eternity is literally unfolding in a Christian believer. And so the way to press our text home today, I think, is to ask you the question, do you really understand this statement in our text today, what it means to say that Christ is your life? Christ, who is your life? What does that mean? Do you understand your life that way? Perhaps you can in a better manner after you consider this text with me today. First of all, verses 1 to 4 here admonish every Christian to know this, that the mainspring, the mainspring of your life is not found in anything on this earth. The apostle says, since or because, since you have died with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, you could say that chapter 2 of Colossians ended on a bit of a downer note. Paul was rebuking false teachers, telling you why their ways were empty and, and all the rules that they wanted to impose didn't accomplish anything. And, and that had kind of a negative look to it. But now he certainly is speaking in a very positive, uplook way. And he's saying, everything I want you to know, to be able to do, comes out of the fact that you have died to the elemental powers of this world and to the binding power of sin, and you have been raised, along with Christ, to an absolutely new life. And, by the way, that new life is the life of Him who is seated at the right hand of God. That's no incidental statement. In fact, Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage that is the most often quoted of any Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's alluded to right here. The idea of Christ as a prince seated at the king's place of authority, his right hand. You you know, we say today about my right-hand man. This woman is my right hand in my life. I don't know how I'd do without her. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the place of power and privilege. And it is said here that we as believers, in effect, are seated at the feet of Christ at the right hand of God. An enthroned Savior who rose from the dead is our Lord, and we have access to Him, and He indwells us. And therefore, this idea of the throne of God and Christ at that throne and us there as willing subjects before that throne is not just some vaporous vision that Paul is making up. It is the position in which the Christian lives his life. It's not just a figure of speech. It's the position you have as a child of God in Christ. And Paul is using this for you to think about the whole concept of, well, what is life anyway? What does it mean to be alive? Does it mean anything? Is there any overarching purpose in it? And you know, the strange thing is there are really people who say, no, I don't think there is. It's just getting up every day, doing the best you can, going to bed, getting some rest, loving people where you can, making your way through this life, keeping yourself alive somehow. But they don't see a reason to ask anything reflective or eternal that would say, what's the meaning of life? 
any more than a tiger or a spruce tree would, would reflect and say, what's the meaning of being a spruce tree? You know that doesn't happen. And there are human beings who are like that. Many of them have become cynical about whatever life might be. I think Shakespeare captured that in the words of Macbeth. You've heard, I'm sure, other times before. Macbeth, who made the statement that life's but a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Life, he said, is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. (coughs) There are people who believe that. There are people who would look no farther than that. But the biblical view of life is here in Colossians. And Paul says, no, that doesn't begin to be life. Life is something brimming with significance, deep with meaning, sparkling with ultimate glory, but you don't expect to see it in the mere circumstances of this world. You'll never pick up what it is just from the hardships that you go through every day or define it according to the cruelty and the the pain and the tragedy that you can see in in living in this world. Uh, Some people will say, well, maybe the, the physicists can find it. You know, those who try to define the beginning of the universe. Maybe the biologists will find it. It sounds like they're making exciting discoveries, breaking down the DNA code that gives that vital information about every cell in your body. Are you, are you prone to have sickle cell anemia someday? Well, they're getting to where they're going to be able to map you out, and, and really the technology, I guess, is there right now to tell you as a two-year-old what you're susceptible to the rest of your life. Wow, that's amazing. You say, is that the meaning of life? Well, wonderful as that is, and I I respect those discoveries, still, that's really just computer code. That's just code about how your body as a molecular and, and biological machine operates. It doesn't tell you anything about the why or the wherefore or the meaning. And you don't find the meaning of life either in what you do for a living. Whatever your occupation may be, I hope it's a fulfilling one. For many it is, for others it's not. You don't even find the meaning of life in the great adventure of falling in love. That's got to be one of life's great moments. And some in the ecstasy of what it means to be in love with another person will say, Ah, here it is. This is what life is. But even that isn't the full meaning that answers the question of why am I alive? Paul bases his meaning of life here on a comparison that he spoke back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he made this analogy to say that believers have been buried with Christ and now are raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised us from the dead. He said, you want to know what life means? It all goes right there. And you can bring in here several other texts that express this, all from Paul. Philippians 1.21, he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I've already decided. You probably don't think about these things. I'm getting old enough that I have to start making decisions about these things. I've already decided that there needs to be Scripture on my tombstone. And I've decided what it is. And you have to think, you know, it can't be too long 
because I'm sure the stonecutters charge by the letter. So it's going to say this, children, you're present in the service, listen up, but I'll give my instructions to the right place. It's going to say this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the most compact definition I can find out. And it comes from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or that other great verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Now, all those verses relate. They all come together around a theme, and it is not simply expressing some sentimental, abstract metaphor or figure of speech. Paul is saying, here's the core of life. To know what life is, is to have Christ, and to see what Christ is, and and he's been talking about that for a chapter and a half, to see the greatness of what Christ is and what he did, and to know that this grand person lives in me. That's life, folks. That's the biggest, deepest, broadest, most astounding definition Paul knows how to give to what life is. To live is Christ. Well, now he adds a little wrinkle to it by saying here that the Christian's life is, quote, hidden or hid with Christ in God. That's an interesting thought. What's that about? Well, back in Colossians 1.25, he made the statement earlier in this book that the whole mystery of what God was doing in the universe, that is Christ being his Son and our Savior and the revelation of this wonderful plan of salvation is something that was hid from the world in general, but now is made known. It's now revealed to the believers. Well, I think it's just a parable, parallel now when he says, our life is hidden with Christ. Since the truth of what the gospel is and Christ's salvation is, is still hid from millions of unbelievers. They don't have a clue what it's all about. It only makes sense that likewise, the people who have discovered this wonderful truth, they equally are hidden from the view of those from whom the gospel is hidden. And while it's true that God has brought about this salvation in those who have trusted in Christ, while it's true that it's a finished reality in us, it has accomplished our forgiveness from sin, it has given us a new life, the majority of the world doesn't see that yet. It's not time for that to be revealed to many people right now. And so it's hidden from them, almost as if it didn't exist, even though it does. Back in October 1991, one of the grand events of the 20th century happened, something many of us wondered if we'd ever see. The Berlin Wall came down. I remember when it went up, when I was a boy of 11 years old, and I just assumed, I guess, that it would always be there, dividing the city of Berlin as Germany was then two different nations, east and west, relatively free and under communism on the other side of the wall. In 1991, it came down. And as I understand it, if you'd been living in old East Berlin at the time the wall came down, you would have seen many immediate changes. Streets had to be renamed, you know, so that where the wall was, the street was continuous, so you had to call it something and not two different things. 
and the police of the city had to be reorganized and, and a government had to be reinstated and, and many, many things changed in everyday life for Berliners because of the unification of their nation and their city. But I'm told that one thing didn't change for quite a long time. And that was the telephone system of Berlin. Because, of course, for years now, for decades, about 30 years, there had been two telephone systems from two nations. And it stayed that way for quite a while. So here you were in former East Berlin right here, and four blocks away in former West Berlin, if you wanted to call over there, you had to call as if you were calling a foreign country. It was a long-distance call to go four blocks until they got all that straightened out. You see, the country's unification was official, but not all the improvements were fully evident yet. Some of them were still hidden in the complexities of the past. That's true for us. Our unification with Christ in his resurrection is something certain and done and accomplished, and yet there are remaining things in our experience that deny it or would appear to say, well, we don't even know if it's going to happen. We have these old bodies, and they're still tempted, and they're still fallible, and all these things are going on. I don't see how I could be risen with Christ. Paul argues this. Dwell on what you know is true. Dwell on what you know Christ accomplished for you, what God has done, not on any appearances to the contrary. Dwell on the eternal things that are set and settled. Now, he says, yes, of course, and he doesn't say it, but it's implied that you still have to pay attention to how you make a living and how to take care of a family and, and you know, certainly necessary things of this life. If you're a surgeon or a salesman or a homemaker, you've got to give your attention to that. But all the time that you're making your way through the daily circumstances of life on this planet, the material things that demand your attention, know that the all-consuming definition of what is your life comes from the unseen things that God has accomplished for you in Christ. Your life, the mainspring of it, is not found on this planet or in your everyday routine. It is something that belongs to what God has done for you in Christ if you're a believer in Him. Now, secondly, we need then to have a daily and deliberate refocus upon our heavenly source of life. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 argues this two ways. It first says, since you have been raised with Christ, since this is an accomplished fact, set your hearts, your affections, what you love, set your love on things above. And secondly, set your minds, the way you think, your whole mindset on things above, not on earthly things. What does he mean by things above? Well, Paul, I believe, has in mind the entire person of Christ, the character of our Lord and Savior, his commands, his words, his promises, everything that he is. We need to gaze on him. We need to study him. Amazing that we have to be told to do that. But Paul says in the midst of all the distractions and things that would take your attention, you've got to grab a hold of your attention and fix it on him above. Somebody from the church was getting in my car this week, and my car at the moment happened to be filthy. I ride on a lot of country roads, and you know what happens when the farmers and the horses go up and down the roads, and 
and it's wet for three weeks. The sides of a white car don't look very good. And uh, I said to this person as they were approaching the door to open the door of my car, I said, look to God above, not to my dirty car. I had this sermon in mind. Well, that's what Paul's saying, you know. Yeah, you're going to be aware of all the all the messy things in your everyday life, but you've got to concentrate your attention in a deliberate manner on the things that really define you and tell you what you are. And then your mind and your affections and all that you are will be developed by what Christ is. Isn't it true when you're in love with a person? I hope that we're not so idealistic or romantic that this is impossible for you to understand, that if you're in love with a person, you want to set your mind on how to please that person. You want to study that person. You say, what will make her happy? What will make her unhappy? What, you know, there are certain things I, I might do or say that she's not going to like, so I better not do those things. But there are certain things that she is going to like, so I better do those things. Or similarly, the way you're influenced by, let's say, your employer. If you go to work for the Acme Better Mousetrap Company, it would be good for you to find out what are the goals of the Better Mousetrap Company. What kinds of company policies exist? What are the executives' desires and, and wants for you? And, and how do you need to shape yourself to fulfill and conform to the patterns of that company? Well, it's just so similar. If you belong to Christ, if your life is hid with God in Christ then there ought to be an absorbing Christ consciousness that shapes you. And particularly in light of the fact, don't miss the strong emphasis of the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is the position of rule, ladies and gentlemen. The emphasis is that he is a Lord. Not just that he's a big brother or a friend. You can think of him that way. That's all right. But he is prominently a Lord, a commander, one in charge. And it is this one who is in charge of everything we've been told earlier in Colossians, in whom the universe holds together. It is this Lord that's going to shape our life as we realize we belong to him. And we treasure him and we desire him like a person deeply in love. Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also going to be. Things on earth, everyday activities, of course they're important. Of course we have to be diligent about them. You know, the, the old caricature of somebody who's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good is a little cliche. I, I'll tell you, I've never had much time for that cliche because I've never met a person like that. Not once in all my Christian experience have I ever met anybody who was so, so absorbed in the things of God, the things above that they weren't paying attention to anything on earth. If I ever do meet that person, I'll tell them, hey, buddy, you better come down off the clouds and pay attention to your everyday life. But I don't expect to meet him. He's never existed in any congregation I've ever pastored. So you're not that person. Most of us are far too earthly-minded. And we have to be told, set your minds above. Set your minds on Christ. Study him. Learn to know him, treasure him, and let all the definition of what your life is be drawn from him. What, after all, can wealth on this earth do for a person who has the treasure of eternity guaranteed in heaven? 
how much difference does it really make? I know you say, okay, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a billion dollars. I'll agree with you. But does it really matter in the ultimate scheme of things when I know that I have the riches of Christ guaranteed to me? How much does fame or honor on this earth mean to people who are already enthroned with Christ at the right hand of God? What can any pleasure or satisfaction that this earth offers me or denies me really do to define me when I am the child of God by faith in Jesus? And here's the the result of this, you know, this daily deliberate refocus on our heavenly source of life. Here's what it does. You and I have the option as we walk through this world of all kinds of things, things related to our career, our daily choices, our family, our relationships. We have choices as to whether to hold these things with a clenched fist or an open hand. And I really believe that when your mind has seized first upon Christ and is holding on to Him by faith for dear life, you'll find that your grip on almost everything else in this world is just going to gradually open up. And you're not going to clench this world quite as firmly. Third, and in closing, Colossians 3, 4 points to a future day when all of this is going to make perfect sense. It's not going to be hidden anymore. The watching universe is going to see it when Christ, here's that definition, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the promise. Our third point is that Christ's return means our public unveiling. Already, believers are raised with Christ. Already, we belong to him. But finally, historically, that day is going to come. We almost don't believe that it ever will. Even Christians hardly believe it will come. But it is going to come, that day that will visibly consummate what is true about us right now. And and the curtains of eternity are going to be pulled back. And everybody's going to see things as they already are, you see. Mankind as a whole is going to be astonished. You mean that guy who, that salesman who worked the territory beside mine was seated with Christ in God 40 years ago and and he has a different eternal place than I have who ignored God and cursed his name all through my life? Yes. Surprise, surprise. The Scripture says Christ will be acknowledged when those curtains are drawn aside and every knee will bow to him and every tongue will say what many can't say right now, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even those of us who are now His, those of us who now can say, Christ is my life, are going to be acknowledged beside Him. The glory of Christ's own person shining like the sun is going to be reflected somehow in us. 1 John 3, 2 has that wonderful promise that we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him as he is, will be like mirrors surrounding him, reflecting his grandeur. Philippians 3.20 promises that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, remember, he's seated at the Father's right hand, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like 
his glorious body. It's coming, and it's guaranteed that it will happen. I believe the emphasis of this short four-verse text falls on the phrase, Christ, who is your life? Take that phrase away with you today and turn it around in your mind. Christ, who is my life? Because you see, apart from Christ, nobody really has life. Apart from him, people have existence, but they don't have life. Just the other day, I was reading something that told about an author whose books I mightily enjoyed as a boy, Robert Louis Stevenson. Everybody knows Treasure Island and Kidnapped and other great books that Stevenson wrote. Did you know he was raised in an evangelical home in Scotland? His father was an earnest Christian who taught his son, Robert, all about the gospel and the catechism and everything that we would teach a child about in this church. And off he went to university and joined in with a group of infidels. And by the time he was about 21, Robert Louis Stevenson denied everything his father believed. His father, Thomas Stevenson, was so crushed, so crushed, he never got over it. He thought his life was, was just a total failure because his son had rejected the faith of Christ. Robert Louis Stevenson died at age 44, fairly untimely death. But before he died, here's what he wrote. He said, if I could believe in that immortality business, the world would be too good to be true. But I know that when the sod covers me up, it will be made clear that my life was only a pilgrimage from nothing to nowhere. Robert Louis Stevenson did not have life. He had existence and nothing more. What is life for the Christian? Its answer is tremendously simple. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the same as saying to live is knowing Christ, and to die is knowing more of him. How could it be bad to die if I'm only going to know more of this wonderful Savior? who is the very principle and mainspring of my life, then I know that this life I live in this earth today is only a rehearsal for the great thing that is yet to come. And so God's instruction by the Apostle Paul today is to tell us believers this, live today fully mindful of heaven as the source of your life, and you will know how to live everything else you have to do on earth. Live in a conscious, studied union with Christ, who is the source of your life, and you will live abundantly. I pray that you will be a person possessed of a single-minded biblical zeal the way the European Count Zinzendorf was possessed. Zinzendorf visited our area long before we lived because he was a leader of the Moravians, And he was involved in the founding of the Moravian colony here in Lancaster County at Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Count Zinzendorf once wrote about Christ his Lord to say this, I have just one passion, and it is Christ and him alone. May you discover 
what it means to say that. Our Father, we ask that we might be set free from all inadequate definitions of life, from all definitions of it rooted in this world alone, definitions rooted even in the people we love. There are people who say, my children are my life. My wife is my life. My career is my life. All that is inadequate. Teach us to say Christ is my life. And from Him, I do understand how to live in every other way. May this be for your honor and praise through Him. Amen. Let us close with singing verses 1, 2,